And good morning to those who are um, not with us this morning, but listening on the podcast or online uh, or in another location. Thanks for joining us. Teresa's going to come and, and read for us from uh, Mark chapter 9 this morning. Thanks for that, Teresa. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 37. Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them and some teachers of the religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about, Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I bought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever his spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion. And he fell to the ground, wriggling and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. And he replied, since he was a little boy. The spirit often throws him into the fire or into the water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean, if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, You spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet and he stood up. Afterward... When Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? And Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. Leaving that region, they travelled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know that he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Teresa. Okay, before we um, take a look and a think about this passage, let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word this morning, your living word that has the power to transform our hearts, to shift our mindset, to bring us peace, comfort, joy, 
but also a challenge to the way that we think right now and the way we live. And um, God, I pray that you would give me clarity of mind and thought and speech and that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us this morning, um, to bring us to you, and only to you. Lord, that we may be comforted in the midst of difficult circumstances and challenged to point to you in all things. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you hear me okay? All right, maybe just a little, little bit more volume so I don't have, to, don't have to shout. Do you ever feel like it's just been one of those weeks? Where you kind of look around, yeah, this week, where you kind of look around at everything that's happening and you ask God or if, depending on where, what your faith is, you just ask yourself, what is going on? Maybe, maybe you've had one of those years, maybe you're in one at the moment, or maybe even several years where you're just acutely aware of the brokenness and the pain in this world, and it's just like, what is happening? I, as many of us have had, I had one of those weeks this week. It wasn't any one particular thing, but just a combination of, as we know, ongoing uh, and new health issues with people that you and I care about, some facing other things on top of that, a myriad of other little things not quite going right. And then on top of that, just God seeming to be silent. And you kind of just want to go, God, come on, really? What is happening? And, and uh, let's remember that about a third of the Psalms, the Bible's book of prayers, uh, are actually completely, uh, cries and complaints to God. The, whole, the Bible has whole books of lament. Uh, and so it's safe to say, I think, that God's not phased by our wrestling with him or even complaining to him about what's going on. So just, just put your hand up if you've ever prayed something like, God, come on, what's going on? Why aren't you stepping in here? Right? And maybe if you didn't have the hand, your hand up, it's coming. I mean, it's important that we're able to express, God, we feel this anguish. Now, I was sitting with the reading from Mark's Gospel this week, and I was struck by how these few different parts sit together, the, the two sections that we read, one quite long and then another just a few verses. For those of you who are, who are new or visiting today or haven't been around for that long, we, we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark, the, or the book of Mark in the Bible. It is... Um, one of four accounts of Jesus' life and, uh, in, in the Scriptures. And uh, we haven't been digging into every single little verse and the meaning of every little bit and what Mark meant and what the readers would have understood it to mean and how to translate, all that kind of thing. What we're doing instead is more so looking at the overarching message, what is the, the, the key themes, the key messages in this account, and um, part of that is how sometimes how a few pieces fit together in one chapter. Why did Mark write about these few things together in chapter 10 or in chapter 8 or whatever? Um, and bear in mind that the gospel writers, who are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four accounts of Jesus' life, they were not going around with a camera crew filming Jesus' life through the whole three, uh, or his ministry through the whole three years and then going back to the office and turning it into a book form. That's not how it went down. 
that they are relying on eyewitness accounts a few years later to go, what were the main key things that he said, the things that he taught, what were the key events that happened on this journey with his disciples over three years, um, and then delivering that in written form with a particular angle depending on who they were writing to. So if you read John's Gospel and then right next to it you read Mark's Gospel, you see that what's included and omitted in each one is different. There's a different angle because there's a sort of a secondary purpose they have in, in delivering a particular message about Jesus to their readers where the common purpose through all four of them is presenting Jesus as the Son of God. I say that because the passages we read today seem to a lot of people, this story about the, the boy with the fits and then Jesus saying, I'm going to have to die, they seem to a lot of people to just be plonked randomly together in chapter 10 because Mark kind of didn't have anywhere else to put some of the other bits. So it was like, oh, all right, we're kind of in the middle here, let's just do this and we'll just plonk them together. But as I sat with them and kind of went, okay, what's, what is this about? I noticed that together... There's a tension that we as Christians have to grapple with and even as human beings just have to grapple with that I reckon the writer was aware of and, and even Jesus himself. A tension between what we've just read next to each other. First of all, just to do a bit of a recap and, and, a, and an unpacking of some of it, we have a story about this boy with an epileptic, epileptic type symptoms, fits, um, but it's we're told it's caused by an evil spirit. The disciples can't free him. Jesus does free him, and then they're like wondering what we did wrong. Jesus says, this kind needs prayer. And it's debated whether the, the, the different scripts they found of, of this writing, whether it also says, and fasting. So this needs prayer or prayer and fasting. Um, fasting being a kind of whole body kind of prayer, giving up food um, as we pray. Um, on the surface, this passage can be used and has been used to basically say something like, when there's a need for God to bring some kind of freedom or breakthrough, whether that be a healing of a sickness or from spiritual attack or provision of resources or a practical need or whatever, that we should just pray harder and maybe fast as well, give up food, and we should just have faith, and it's kind of like a formula. If you pray and you fast with faith, then God will answer the prayer. Right? So there's this kind of formula that we can't, some people can get from this. And Christians will often respond in one of a couple of ways to this. Either trust the formula, okay, if I pray and have faith, then clearly this means God will answer. Or we go, well, that doesn't work, so clearly the principle of sometimes prayer is needed is just wrong. Let's just reject it altogether. And I don't think either response, either just turn it into a formula or reject the principle altogether is, is wise. Because first of all, the passage is about a boy possessed by an evil spirit. And that's a unique thing. Now, you can be very 21st century and say, clearly it was just epilepsy. Demonic possession is a mythical first century thing you know, that we don't believe in anymore. But if that's the case, I would, I would challenge you to, to, to ask the question, well, what is, what is this really saying then? Because if it was just epilepsy, uh, if it was a medical illness, then it would seem that in this situation, Jesus is saying, oh, this kind needs prayer. And if you do that, then you can heal this. And then it starts to become a formula. 
And clearly, that's not right. We believe that there is a very, as Christians, we believe there is a very real spiritual world. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is that if you approach any kind of spiritual evil force thinking, I got the power! That was, I did not get that right. I was hoping for a re- If you approach it with, I got the power, I can do this, in the name of Jesus, then you've really got no power at all because any power that we might have to approach the evil forces of this world comes from relying on God. And this is what Jesus is saying. That needs prayer because you ain't got the power. The Spirit of God given to you, you need to lean on God for this. That's really what he's saying in this. But there's still a principle in the passage, even though we can reject the idea that it's just, just a formula, prayer plus faith plus fasting equals answered prayer, we can, there's still a principle of leaning on God. Um, even fasting to do that might be wise, a kind of whole body prayer, as, as something that it's, it's essential, this prayer leaning on God when we desire some kind of breakthrough in the life of another person, whatever that might be, illness, an unjust situation, other practical needs, the need for provision. And in light of many of the miracles of Jesus um, and of his disciples, it's, it's clear we should pray for these things. We should ask God and seek God and lean on God. So we shouldn't throw out the principle. Some things absolutely need prayer. So that's the story of the young boy and maybe what we, we might take from that. But then the, the last few verses that Teresa read this morning uh, is this little section where Jesus says this, the Son of Man, and he's referring there to himself, is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. Now here's what struck me about these two passages being right next to each other in chapter 9, the healing or the, the release of the boy and then, um, then this bit. If you were to read the story about the boy having convulsions, you could come out with this conclusion because it's, there's this thing about, you know, just help my unbelief, you know, this requires faith. And you could come out with the conclusion that if we have Jesus and we just pray enough, there's always a happy ending to the story, right? Kind of like the formula. But then you read this where Jesus says, hey, fellas, I'm going to be betrayed and murdered. I'm going to die. And it's not going to be nice. And you remember that even for Jesus, not everything was just pray and it will all get better. That wasn't how it worked for him. Sometimes a healing happened, a miracle happened, but not every time. A couple of years ago, many of us in this congregation, we started to pray for somebody uh, who we know who was diagnosed with a serious illness. We, We prayed, their family, their church prayed. We prayed some more, we prayed some more. There were some positive signs, but ultimately it got worse. And and this person, my age, uh, passed away, leaving behind a mum, a dad, a husband, and a brother. God did not answer those prayers the way that so many of his children asked. We prayed today for members of, of our own congregation with a belief and a faith that God has the power and the ability to, to bring complete and total healing and break, or breakthrough in their situation, whatever their situation may be. And yet, we still simply do not know what the end result will be. 
So God, what's going on? What's with this? You answer prayers sometimes and you seem to not at other times. The prophet Habakkuk, you maybe didn't know there was a prophet called Habakkuk. Uh, he's not like Isaiah or Jeremiah, one of those ones with about 60 chapters in the book. Habakkuk is just, in the Old Testament, about three short chapters where there's this brief back and forth with God. And, and the prophet Habakkuk, uh, this is well before Jesus lived, he, he asked God questions like this. God, you don't seem to really care. God, you aren't doing much when you could. You knew God could do something, but you don't seem to be doing much. And God, what you are doing doesn't seem fair. Those are pretty raw questions, right? You don't seem to really care. You aren't doing much when you could be doing something, and what you are doing doesn't seem fair. Habakkuk was, was crying out to God regarding the, the evil among um, the, the people we live with and the injustices against those who were, um, had, a, had a right heart. Um, and he, he said, God, when are you going to do something? When are you going to step in? When are you going to care for the people who love you? And God did answer Habakkuk. You know what he said? Well, he said this, I am raising up the Babylonians that ruthless and impetuous people who weep across, who, who, who sweep, should say, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. Hang on a second, God. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Your answer to my cry for help is that our enemies are going to come and wipe us out. And God says, yes, that's, that's part of my plan to restore justice on the earth. How do you continue to trust God and live with a sense of joy and contentment when God could step into your situation or he could do something good and, and, and bring, bring about the well-being of the people you're praying for and instead he either doesn't act or he does something that seems to make things worse. How do you trust God in those situations? What happens when you pray faithfully but there's not a happy ending? What then? Another example of this is one of my, um, my mentors from a distance, I'd call him, just a leader who I look up to and admire, doing amazing uh, things, leading a, a wonderful church um, by the name of Craig Greshel. He, he wrote a book called Hope in the Dark, and this book was prompted by his struggle with unanswered prayer as his daughter uh, continues to battle with, a, with an illness that, that leaves her with very little energy, sometimes in a lot of pain. And... Um, and he talks about how when he submitted the book to the publishers, very raw and lots of stories of how do we find hope in the dark, he said he knew in the back of his mind that the publishers take about 12 months to get everything together, and then after those 12 months he could add an appendix on the back of the book that would basically then say, you know what, we kept praying, and by God's grace, Mandy is now healed. So keep praying, everyone. But the thing is that the book's now been released, she hasn't been healed, and... There was no appendix. And this is just one of thousands of stories of people who have had faith, strong, grounded faith in God, but in the end, nothing. So what do you do when you're asking the questions Habakkuk asks? God doesn't seem to care. What do you do when he doesn't, care? When he doesn't seem to be doing much when he could? And what he is doing doesn't seem fair. 
Now, this is the part of the sermon where I'm supposed to lift your spirits with a biblical, hope-filled, faith-lifting answer. And instead, my answer to that question is, I don't really know. If I'm honest, I'm not even sure that there is a completely satisfactory answer all the time to that question. Sometimes life really stinks. I guess what I can offer is, is this, that if we agree on that, sometimes life's a pile of poop, then from there, I think we have somewhere we, where we can move. If we can get there, life on this side of death is sometimes just not good. Then from there, we can consider whether our hope can be placed somewhere other than this life. Now, I don't have to tell you that hope is an absolutely essential life-sustaining thing. It's kind of like air. If you remove hope, you suffocate. Everyone needs hope. And so the question becomes, is there anything or anyone that I can put my hope in that will not leave me in a place at some point where all hope is lost? Is there anything or anyone where I can place my hope? And the answer is not on this side of death. Because ultimately, sometimes things will turn around and sometimes they won't. And we all face the ultimate statistic that one in one people die. Right? So there is nothing on this side of death. But Jesus said this. He said, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of my enemies. I'll be killed, but three days later I'll rise from the dead. And this is the beginning of Jesus teaching and training his disciples about something that's going to transform their lives and the lives of billions of people after them, including right through to us today, 2,000 years later. And that is that our one primary life-giving hope, the only hope that we can, that we can find our real grounded hope in, is the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. Now Paul, uh, who wrote much of the New Testament um, after Jesus lived, he said that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is useless. Why did he say that? Why did he say that if, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, that, that, we, that our faith is, is, is void? Well, it's because the whole Christian faith is about a hope the same resurrection Jesus experienced, we too will experience when he returns to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. That same resurrection is for us. And it feels like, to me, this, this, this part of Mark's gospel after the story about the boy is such a key part in this section because if we go through life with the hope that the thing that we're facing, whatever that is, that 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 they'll get better or he'll come around or she'll change her ways or the money will come through or things will fall into place, whatever the hope is that we have, it may, it may not happen. It just may not come through. But it doesn't mean that there's no hope. The question we have to ask is where does our hope lie? In fact, when it doesn't happen, when that thing doesn't come through or she doesn't live or whatever it might be, it's a reminder 
that an even better hope actually does exist. Because this life is temporary, but the resurrection, this thing our hope is in, it lasts for eternity. It's an eternal hope, not a temporary one. The Apostle Peter writes this in his letter to suffering and persecuted Christians. This is one of Jesus' closest disciples. Um, And he writes this, speaking about the resurrection. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of chance and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day. That is when Jesus returns for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. And and in other parts of his letter, this is how Peter refers to his readers. He calls them temporary residents and foreigners. Temporary residents and foreigners. We are actually temporary residents, only here for a while, here being this broken and messed up version of this world. We're only here for a while. It's temporary. C.S. Lewis says this powerful quote, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I was made for another world. And we are. We, we are actually made for Eden. That's just a way of saying we are made for a world where there is unhindered relationship with God and unhindered relationship with one another, not this version of earth that's been overtaken by sin and its effects. And so our, our hope, our hope is in the resurrection and only in the resurrection. And even if you've never heard this stuff before, never really grappled with this stuff before, I believe that it's built into the human spirit. It's built into your heart. There's this desire to be freed from the weight of this broken place. And what you long for, whether you know it or not, is the resurrection. But if we follow Jesus and cling to this hope, I think this does more than just gives us an escapist, oh, it's better if I die. I'll just wait till then, then it'll all be better again. I think it actually shapes our reality, our present reality now as well. So Peter goes on to say this. He says, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is more precious than mere gold. And and Jesus' brother James says it this way. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Here's what I really love about that principle and that what, what James says there. Here's what really sucks about that. It's hard. It's not easy. I know it's supposed to be about joy and, oh, yes, now we can. But actually, this is really challenging. Am I, am I like, are you all disagreeing with me or am I, am I just, 
I feel like it's, uh, uh, it's not easy. I'm not sure that I love that principle. I, I mean, I'm sort of half joking. I mean, yes, it's about joy. We can know that the perseverance produces in us a faith that brings us to maturity closer and closer to Jesus. But it's not fun if we're really honest. Yes, it's reassuring to know that the stuff we face in this life is not the end, but it's difficult to hold on to a future eternal perspective in the midst of these things. But this is what we have. Ultimately, our hope is in the resurrection of our, of our bodies to a new and better world with our wonderful God and Saviour. And I just want to finish with, with something that I, I heard recently that I hope may, may help um, you know, us holding on to this future hope. Uh, when we face um, this life, uh, at some point, many of us here in this room have come to a point where we, God, we feel God reveals himself to us and the journey of faith in God begins. And, and usually the beginning of that journey can be, um, if here's faith going up over time, it can be a great, yes, God, I'm, I'm experiencing you, I'm, I'm seeing that I can trust in you, you're answering prayer, and our faith increases um, well over time. And then we kind of hit this point where maybe a prayer isn't answered and something happens and we start to go, oh, I'm, I'm not sure, and our faith begins to, to stagnate a bit and maybe it even begins to turn in the other direction. And some have called this a crisis of belief or a crisis of faith where a circumstance means we're going, oh, maybe, maybe this isn't right. Maybe, maybe God's not really real. We have a couple of options here, three to be precise. One is just to pretend that we're on the mountaintop again. You go, you know what, it's all good. God's still in control. But really in here, we're going, I don't know if I believe that anymore. I feel that actually faith is going down. So that's one option. Just pretend we're up on the mountaintop again. The other option is to go, you know what? Obviously, this was a big delusion. I'm just going to go way back here. God, I thought you were real. I'm not even sure why I'm talking to you because it seems that you're not there after all. Or maybe it's just, I believe you're real, but obviously you're not who I thought you were. So one option is to pretend we're back on the mountaintop. The other is to just to go back here. But there is a third option as this crisis of belief happens where rather than denying it, or by giving up, we can look at someone like the, the prophet Habakkuk, whose name actually means to wrestle and embrace. And we continue to wrestle with God, asking the hard questions, but hold on to him. For me, this season of a bit of a crisis of belief was actually uh, probably the first real one I think I had was when I was at theological college, um, otherwise known as cemetery, I mean semin seminary, um, because the Jesus I experienced in this phase and who I saw at work and alive in, in his church and revealing himself in, in, in wonderful, loving ways to me and to others, the, the lecturers, the leaders that I have didn't seem to believe in that Jesus and seemed to think Jesus was, an, was, was quite different to that. And so I kind of went, oh, what's going on, God? Was this all a big facade, like, is it, and, it, and it confused me, and I, and I wrestled, and I went, I'm not sure what I believe anymore. But the third option, rather than pretending it was all good or just going back and giving up, was to go, you know what, I'm going to keep wrestling with you, God. I'm going to keep embracing you, 
and then eventually be able, if we could have that verse from James back up on the screen, be able in the wrestling to say, I can consider it pure joy. Can I have that verse back up on the screen from James? Last slide. I can consider it pure joy even in trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces and then it kicks in, perseverance. And after that perseverance begins to come, he continues to mature us so that we're not lacking anything and our faith can go forward again. And this is the discovery we need to make as Christians that faith and walking with Jesus does not happen like that all through our life. It's probably something like this, where there's mountains and there's valleys. And the thing we need to learn is that true intimacy with God is not to live on the mountaintop, it's to get to know his faithfulness in the valley. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters. He refreshes my soul, guides me along right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Maybe for you, the hope of the resurrection is exactly what you need to keep embracing God even as you wrestle with him. But maybe it's not that. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's a deep support of, com- of the community around you. Maybe it's practical provision. As I said, I don't know all the answers. I wish there was an all-encompassing answer to this question of what do you do when God just seems to not be there and not care and not be answering the prayers that we, we think are his will for us. What do you do? All I know so far in my life and in the lives of so many people I've journeyed with and had the privilege of walking with is that God proves his faithfulness not on the mountain but in the valley. Amen? So whether you're on the mountain today or whether you're in the valley or whether you're just kind of cruising along on the highway, uh, I just want to finish with a reminder for all of us of who God is who our God is and and what he wants of us. This is who he is and how he's reached out to us. We were lovingly created by a God not to be robots, but as people with free will, with freedom to do as we wish. Each and every one of us, though, has chosen to live for self, and we've thereby separated ourselves from a holy God. He sent his son Jesus to die in our place for our sins, but God raised him to life. So by placing our trust in Jesus, he takes our separation from God and replaces it with a relationship with God so that we too will be raised to life with him when he returns. God does not need perfection. He does not need our religion. He does not need ritual. All he asks of us is that we trust him, that we entrust our lives into his hands to put our faith in Jesus not in ourselves, so that then he can give us his Holy Spirit to lead us through this life and eventually to lead us home. That is what he wants, for him to lead us to this home that we are made for. And so what I want to do to finish today is just ask you to stand, music team to come up, and we're just going to pray a prayer of commitment again to Jesus because this is all we have is to cling to him. Why don't you stand we'll pray together.
And as we pray, if this is something you haven't prayed for a while and you feel you're coming back to Jesus, or if it's something you never prayed before and you have more questions about it or feel that God is tugging on your heart this morning, we'd love to just chat with you afterwards. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that while he walked this earth with the full authority and power of heaven, he was willing to give up his life to let that prayer that he prayed that he would find another way to go about this, to let that pass and to submit fully to your will, to die on a cross for our sins in our place. We thank you that by trusting in you, you give us new life. You take away our separation from you and you give us a new relationship with you. And so we place our trust in you once again this morning. We ask that you would forgive us of our sins and that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with the very life, the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that we too would receive new life and one day rise with you in the new creation. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love towards us, that you would give up everything that we might find life. Help us to live in a way that honours you from this day forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Team's going to lead us in a song that we were singing as you maybe walked in this morning, um, which on the one hand sounds like a boppy, celebratory song, but it's actually a real prayer that we would cling to God when, as the words on the screen say, our hope and strength is gone. Um, Not that we are conquerors in some kind of, I've got the power way, but that the power that we have to overcome the challenges of this world comes from the God who we submit our lives to. So let's sing this song together and then we'll close.